First, I want to say thank you for tuning in to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with yours truly, Leo Flowers. I also want to thank you for going to iTunes, rating it five stars, sharing it with your friends. That means so much to me. And the more we share it, the more we talk about this, the, the faster we can destigmatize it and, and, and help people who have shame and embarrassment around mental health and suicidality uh, start to speak out about it and, and get the help that they need. Um, I, I want to apologize in advance for the uh, sound quality on this episode and future episodes because, as you know, with the quarantine, uh, they can't be done live. So all these uh, recordings that you hear are going to be Skyped. And in this episode particularly, uh, Cyrus, one of the guests, I have two guests on today. Uh, one is in Costa Rica the other is in L.A., and I am in San Diego. Uh, so it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a little choppy in some places, but uh, we did the best we could to clean it up, and, and the information is so invaluable, which is why I had them on. Uh, they have a New York Times best-selling book called Mastering Diabetes. And, the, and one of the reasons why this is so important is because I've lost so many people in my family to diabetes and crinkling in the background. Uh, as my girl is loading the, the refrigerator. Um, but there's so many people who are struggling with diabetes and chronic pain, and they don't have to be. They don't realize how uh, much food can contribute to some of the chronic pain that we experience. And so this is really a great opportunity to, to learn and, and get educated uh, on how foods affect our mood and our behavior and, uh, and, 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 and also debunk a lot of the myths that w- we have around food, especially sugars and fat. So let's all get healthy together. Let's all thrive together. And if you, once again, if you need one-on-one coaching, go to thrivewithleo.com, thrivewithleo.com, and we can help get you to tomorrow together. Thank you guys for joining us on Before You Kill Yourself. Uh, guys are the author of Mastering Diabetes. I'm excited. This is something that we need to be talking about and, and the world needs to hear about. Uh, welcome, guys. It's funny. I remember our original conversation. I was telling Robbie a couple hours ago. I was like, man, it was such a good convo. We went into such depth on so many different aspects of health and living with diabetes. And then when you told me that the audio didn't work, I was like, a little part of me died. But, you know, we're back here again. So let's have some fun. Yes, you sir. know, maybe it's meant to be, Cyrus, because what's going on in the world right now, there's uh, a lot of relevance here talking about diabetes and, and COVID-19. Well, so can you elaborate on that, Robbie? Well, the statistics are showing us that people who are living with comorbidities such as type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, are at a higher risk of complications when they contract the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So taking care of yourself and addressing those conditions and starting to reverse them, which you can do, is a high priority right now. Yeah, you know, that's what I've heard is it's the comorbidity. It's not the, I mean, you know, COVID-19 is horrible in itself, but uh, my buddy, he had pneumonia, and he, and he got the COVID, and uh, he he was almost on life support. So, you know, by the grace of God, he recovered, and he's still with us. 
but uh but that's what they're saying is like your your cold becomes a flu your flu becomes pneumonia and then you get that covid and it, it's a wrap so i can't imagine uh what it's like if you have diabetes and you know already having a compromised uh immune system yeah no joke and you know unfortunately in today's world there's a very large percentage of the American population is living with some form of chronic disease. Just for diabetes itself, we're looking at 30 million people who have diagnosed diabetes, and then there's 85 million people who have undiagnosed uh, pre-diabetes who don't even know about it. So you add those two numbers together, you get 115 million people, which is one-third of the U.S. population just with diabetes. Then you add in heart disease, hypertension, uh, high cholesterol, fatty liver disease, chronic kidney disease, and the number goes upwards of 60, 70, 80% of the population that has some chronic disease that elevates their risk for complications. So the time is now. Like We don't have a choice. We have to start making changes. Otherwise, uh, it can get ugly, and it can get ugly real quick. Yeah. What, what are those? Are, are, are there symptoms with the prediabetes versus diabetes? Like, Would, would someone know? Yeah. So the, the way that most people find out that they have prediabetes in the first place is they go to their doctor for like a routine annual checkup. And as part of the checkup, the doctor says, okay, we're going to go do, uh, we're going to take a blood test and we're going to go measure these various biomarkers. So they'll test uh, your fasting blood glucose. They'll get a thing, something called an A1C measurement, which is a, a marker of your average three-month glucose. And then in addition to that, they'll probably check your lipid panel and they'll figure out your total cholesterol, your LDL, your HDL, your triglycerides, and then a number of other biomarkers. So a lot of people go to their doctor, they get this routine blood work, and it comes back, and the doctor picks up on the fact that their A1C is elevated. So uh, your A1C, it, what you want it to be is 5.6% or less. And if it is 5.6% or less, what that means is that you are non-diabetic. When you are living with prediabetes, your A1C goes between 5.7 and 6.4%. So if you have an elevated A1C level, then you fall into the prediabetes range. And then if your A1C climbs north of 6.5%, then technically speaking, you have type 2 diabetes. So if you go to the root, you know, doctor, you get a routine blood test, you come back, and your doctor says, oh, wait a minute, your hemoglobin A1C came back at 6.1%. You have prediabetes. And that's now we need to start thinking about what we're going to do in order to get rid of prediabetes. And um, that's sort of the, the way that most people figure it out. And I'll add to that, Cyrus, you know, right now, I think a lot of people might be scared to go get their blood drawn or, you know, get that, that test. You can go to your local pharmacy or you could order on Amazon these over-the-counter A1C tests. I think one of the most prominent companies is A1C Now, and they are very accurate. So if you're curious and you suspect maybe you're living with prediabetes and you want to know, you can test yourself quite inexpensively and conveniently. Oh, I never even knew that. Man, that is great information to know. I'm going to go grab one. I just took my uh, 23andMe, uh, Ancestry.com, DNA, all that stuff, and they said uh, type 2 diabetes is my, my biggest threat uh, genetically. And um, and I've, I've lost a lot of people in the family to it. That's why I'm so glad to have you guys on to talk about it. 
Um, yeah. But uh, can you share share with the listeners uh, why why you guys uh, what what led you guys uh, into into writing this book and why this is so uh, important to you talking about diabetes? For sure. So, Robbie and I both are living with type one diabetes, which is uh, historically people have referred to type one diabetes as like juvenile onset diabetes. It's the type of diabetes that that you get, generally speaking, when you're an adolescent. You know, you could be anywhere from like, you could be a toddler, two, three, five years old. You could be eight, 15, you know, usually somewhere before the age of like, I don't know, 15, 20 or so is when most people develop type one diabetes. But in today's world, people are developing type one diabetes later and later. And so, uh, you know, the classification of type one is basically somewhere between zero and 30 years old. Point being is that both of us were diagnosed with type one diabetes at various stages in life. Me at the age of 22, Robbie at the age of 12. Is that right, Robbie? 12? That's right. Yep. And, you know, we didn't know each other at that time. So we basically, you know, what I did was I, I was 22 years old. I was, uh, you know, going to Stanford university, just trying to finish up school, move on with my life. And all of a sudden I get this diagnosis of, you know, it was a chronic disease and I didn't really know what it meant. So the doctors told me that not only did I have type one diabetes, but I also had, uh, alopecia universalis, which is, which is a condition where you lose all your hair. And then I also developed Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, which is another autoimmune condition. So I actually have three autoimmune conditions that all set in within a six month period. And you can imagine being 22 years old and all of a sudden getting diagnosed with all three of these. It's a little unnerving, you know, especially when there aren't very many good solutions. So the doctors, they didn't, they didn't know what to tell me. And really what they did was they said, hey, listen, we can, we can tell you how to eat to manage type 1 diabetes, but we can't really do anything about Hashimoto's, nor can we do anything about alopecia. And the way to handle type 1 diabetes is to eat a low-carbohydrate diet. So I was like, okay, sounds like a plan. Let's do the low-carbohydrate thing. So I started eating a low-carbohydrate diet because that's what I was told to do. And in the process of doing that, it was supposed to make my blood glucose more controllable. And it was supposed to keep my insulin use nice and low. So I was eating things like red meat, white meat, turkey burgers, uh, peanut butter, fish. Um, you know, I was eating kind of a meat-heavy diet and trying to limit my intake of potatoes and rice and fruits because, again, I was told that you know anything carbohydrate-rich was going to actually make my life worse. So it was supposed to make my blood glucose controllable. It didn't. My blood glucose was an absolute disaster. And um, as a result of that, I decided that I had to try and find another way to live a healthy life. So I started looking for information, and one thing led to another, and I got introduced to this idea of being a plant-based eater. And for, for full clarity here, I was literally that guy who used to make fun of vegetarians and vegans when I was growing up. You know, People would tell me, oh, I'm a vegetarian or a vegan, and, and, and what I would say is, oh, I'm sorry <laughs> that life is so bad for you. My sister tried to become a vegetarian from such a young age, and, and I would make fun of her. You know? But here I am at the age of 23 now thinking, oh, wait a minute, maybe this whole vegetarian or vegan thing has some legitimacy. I wonder what this is all about. So in switching over to a plant-based diet, I, I recognized immediately within – literally within 24 hours that my blood glucose was more controllable. My insulin use fell dramatically, and the, the results kept on getting better and better and better more energy, more hydrated, could sleep better, could think better, could exercise more, could recover faster. And I was like, wow, 
this feels awesome. So long story short, put myself back to school when I got a PhD in trying to understand what, what was actually happening inside of my own body. And while I was studying and learning, I found that um, there's a whole body of research that dates back to the 1920s, literally 100 years ago, that clearly describes the, the mechanism, the biological mechanism that I was experiencing in my body. And beyond the mechanism that it described what was happening inside of me, it was also a mechanism that, that happens inside of all humans and all mammals. And, and it basically what I learned is that there's a lot of scientific knowledge about why transitioning to a plant-based diet is so powerful and so effective as a chronic disease reversal tool and a type 1 diabetes management tool that I was like, oh my God, this is fascinating. So when I ended up meeting Robbie a couple years later, the two of us ended up creating Mastery Diabetes so that we could teach people living with all forms of diabetes, not just type 1, but type 1. 0.5, pre-diabetes type 2, gestational, how they can also transition to a plant-based diet so that they can get phenomenal results and in most cases, say goodbye to blood glucose fluctuations for the rest of their life. Man, let me tell you, since I've we had a discussion, I've changed my diet um, to a more plant-based diet where I'm eating nice. oatmeal and quinoa, uh, also influenced by you know the trip to Peru. Because to, to double down on what you're saying, it's like, you know, I've always been a person who I like to read the science. I like to I like to educate myself, uh, you know, uh, scholastically and traditionally. But at the end of the day, I'm talking to the people, you know, I'm talking to the people who who look healthy, who feel healthy. And, you know, you and uh, and Robbie, man, you guys look strong and fit. Um, but also when you travel, you know, being in Peru. These people are living to 100, 105, and their primary diet is potatoes, quinoa, and corn. The fish, yep. the meat, all that stuff, they, they eat trout, but that was introduced to them. They eat meat rarely, every now and again. But these people are not just living to, like, to be 100. They're thriving to that age. Like, they were just like taking the side of the hill like it was nothing and I was dying and me and other people are just like having to stop to catch our breath but so you mm. know there's you know you can say oh it's just a book and two guys but I've seen I've witnessed with my own eyes the culture of, of people who prescribe to a, my grandmother lived to be 90 and she ate meat maybe once a week I mean mostly because they couldn't afford it but she never needed glasses or used a cane and just died strong at 90 at the table. So this, this, uh, this idea that uh, of, of meat and potatoes on a daily basis is, is, is uh, I, don't see, I don't see the proof in it, you know? Um, yeah. You bring up a really important point of looking at long-lived cultures, looking at people around the world and observing, wait a minute, they have low chronic disease rates. They um, live long, healthy lives. What do they eat? What do they do? What are their habits? And our good friend Dan Butner traveled the world and wrote a book called The Blue Zones. Have you heard of that book? I have heard of that book. Yeah. So that's been a really fascinating group of people to look at. So, um, and just like you saw in Peru, 
people in the blue zones around the world eat predominantly plant-based foods. And the one food that he found in common across all of them was beans. So the five blue zones, they have, this includes Loma Linda in California, then the Coya Peninsula in Costa Rica, right near Cyrus. Then you have uh, Okinawa, Japan. Then you have Sardinia, Italy. And what's the fifth one, Cyrus? Icaria, Greece. There it is. Boom. Those are the five blue zones that Dan Butner identified where people live long, healthy lives. They move, they get sunshine, they have community, but their diet is predominantly plants. It is, right. It's like they, they I mean, when you look at it, it's legumes, dark leafy greens, nuts, olive oil, steel cut oatmeal, blueberries, and uh, barley. Those, those are the, those seem to be like the top seven uh, foods uh, that those areas have in common. Um, and it, it's, I, I think that, Part of it is we're not educated enough, one, on the foods that we have, but two, the foods that we do have, even if you try to eat healthy, um, these these huge corporations have tricked us into thinking that they're like take potatoes, right? Like the potatoes that we get here, those large potatoes, those have little to no nutritional value versus the smaller potatoes. That's what I learned in Peru. The small ones are the organic ones. Those are the ones that are packed with all the minerals and nutrients. And the larger ones, uh, it's kind of been watered down. Uh, but it's, it's, that's not how I grew up. I grew up on, like, the big potato with the sour cream and the butter and all those things in there. So it really is going to take uh, education. And, and it starts with your book. That's why I'm excited by your book. Uh, because there's just so many people walking around misinformed as to what, where they can get protein from. I mean... When you look mm-hmm. at potato, I didn't know pro- potatoes had protein. I was like, potatoes got protein? Oh, snap. <laughs> yeah, I got excited. I was like, 15%. I'm all over this, you know? Right. It's um, like, who teaches that? You know, you never, you never, people just think of a potato as just ba- basic. The way that modern marketing works these days is people get coerced into believing that a potato equals something that's going to make you fat. It's going to stick to your ribs. Right. It's going to make you fat. It's responsible for weight gain. It's going to raise your cholesterol and it's going to raise your blood sugar. And it's like, come on. There's no scientific legitimacy to these arguments, but yeah, that's the pervasive conversation. And that's exactly what you're saying is we got to start to change that. Absolutely. Uh, and, and what's the feedback been? You know, I, 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 I looked up the book on Amazon and everything you sent. Here's the thing. You, you sent me the book. Thank you so much. But as Absolutely. soon as I uh, we got back from Peru, uh, I couldn't stay up in my place in L.A. We had to drive immediately down to San Diego. So I have not been uh, at my place to pick up my mail yet since we mm. got back. So I have I have not uh, read the book yet. But the but the reviews online have been insane and all and mostly pot 99 percent positive. So what, what, what's been the feedback? I mean, I'm sure you guys have heard stories and, and, and people are just loving it. For sure. So first things first, uh, the, the book became a New York Times bestseller, which was like just out of this world. We were so excited about that. Right. And that was actually really exciting to watch. So, so that happened. And then in addition to that, um, people around the world have been writing to us 
have been sharing, you know, testimonials with us via Instagram, which Robbie can talk more about. But I mean, the response has been tremendous for people saying, oh my God, I've been looking for this information for so long. I've been applying the Mastering Diabetes Method. It's only been one week. It's only been one month. And oh my God, why has nobody told me about this before? Yeah, exactly what Cyrus is saying. People are amazed at how quickly they see results, even when just changing one meal at a time. So the book lays out a step-by-step plan for transitioning to a low-fat, plant-based, whole food diet to maximize your insulin sensitivity. And you don't have to change overnight. And you don't have to be perfect to get extraordinary results. And that's what I think shocks a lot of people and gets them really excited about, wow, I'm, I'm just getting started. I'm already seeing the results. And it's just motivating to keep going and do more and more. So the book has over 30 recipes, has two 21-day meal plans. So all people have to do is just follow the instructions in the book, and they can expect to gain more energy. They can expect to see their fasting blood glucose drop. They can expect to lose weight effortlessly. They can expect to start to see, uh, um, experience a little more mental clarity. Their skin can clear up. I mean, I personally, I had terrible cystic acne before I adopted a plant-based diet, did all kinds of uh, creams and treatments and eventually took Accutane and all that. And then finally, just changing my diet cleared up my skin. So the results are far reaching when actually people do this properly. Well, and, and what I'm also excited about is uh, also like you, you're, de- you're debunking so many uh, myths surrounding diabetes. You know, I grew up with, uh, we didn't call diabetes diabetes. We call it the sugar. And it, it created this, this fear, this, the, you know, this angst around sugar of, of any, even from fruit. I think that's what scares many people is you didn't want to get the sugar. So I, I think you had a generation of people who st- even stayed away from fruit, although they were consuming Coca-Cola and and, and, and other sources of soda. Can you talk to us about the difference between the fruit that you're getting from a Coca-Cola versus the, the sugar you're getting from a banana and raspberries and blueberries? For sure. It's one of my favorite subjects. So uh, you're absolutely right. In today's world, you know, people, people unfortunately use the word sugar incorrectly. And what I mean by that is that we use the word sugar to describe a white crystalline substance that comes from a package, right? Like table sugar. Um, We also use the same word to describe a sweet flavor that comes from a pear or a peach or a papaya. And the problem with that is that if you drill down into the molecular biology to figure out if using the same word to describe two fundamentally different things is appropriate. What you'll find is that um, the, the word sugar in our society um, should be used and only used when talking about a refined white crystalline substance or an artificial sweetener that makes packaged and processed food more tasty. So we're talking about white sugar, high fructose corn syrup, uh, anything like dextrose, sorbitol, mannitol, xylitol, 
These are all added sweeteners that are put into packaged products to make them taste sweet. So if we're going to use the word sugar, let's use it only to describe those sweeteners, okay? The reason why using the word sugar to describe the type of energy that you get from a banana or from a papaya, from a mango, uh, is, is inappropriate is simply because inside of a fruit, okay, you got to think of a fruit as basically being like a complex three-dimensional uh, object. And the three-dimensional object has a bunch of, of macronutrients and micronutrients all mixed together. So if I were to like just envision a banana in your head, okay, a banana has a very particular shape to it. And if it was just literally a pile of sugar, it wouldn't have that shape. There's no way. So the question is, well, what's giving it that shape in the first place? And the answer is that a banana, as an example, contains a significant amount of fiber. Okay, And the fiber is basically a, uh, a structural material that gives fruits and vegetables um, a, a particular uh, – like it, it gives them not only a shape, but it's like rebar – if you were building a building, right, or you're building a, a highway overpass. You ever seen a highway overpass constructed before? Oh, yeah. Okay, so you, if you've seen it constructed where you'll see that, that they actually put rebar in and they, they frame, you know, the, the, the support that's about to go up. And then they put a bunch of rebar inside of that, which are like actual metal rods that are on the inside of um, a concrete pillar. And then once everything is in place, then they pour the concrete as the final thing. And so from the outside, you look at it and you go, oh, that's just a bunch of concrete. But if you actually look inside of it, you'll find that there's a whole bunch of rebar that's reinforcing that structure. In the same way, fiber is the thing as the rebar on the inside of the banana that's reinforcing its structure. In addition to fiber, you also have carbohydrate, you have protein, you have fat. There's all three of those are present inside of every single fruit and vegetable and legume and whole grain. In addition to that, you also have a collection of micronutrients like vitamins and minerals and fiber and water and antioxidants and phytochemicals. And it's these behind-the-scenes micronutrients that add some significant disease-fighting potential to the actual food. So when the next time you, you open a, a, a fruit up, think about it as a collection of macro and micronutrients. And once you put it all together, it starts to make a lot more sense. Now, when you eat a fruit, what ends up happening is that it has a sweet flavor, and the sweet flavor comes from glucose and fructose, which is you know freely floating inside of that object. And then it travels down your esophagus, and it starts to get deconstructed inside of your small intestine. Uh, it takes time for the enzymes in your small intestine to fully deconstruct it. Okay, so your your small intestine and your liver they manufacture a whole collection of enzymes including your pancreas, does so the same thing. And, and these are things called like carbohydrases and proteases and lipases and elastases. And these are all a whole collection of enzymes that have a specific responsibility to chemically deconstruct that food. And eventually, if you allow for enough time to pass, those enzymes will eventually break apart the food completely and pull apart the vitamins from the minerals, from the glucose, from the fructose, from the amino acids, from the fatty acids, and you'll end up with individual nutrients that can then be absorbed and eventually transported to other tissues. When you're eating something that contains 
macronutrients and micronutrients together, it takes time to deconstruct that food. It could take 15 minutes. It could take half an hour. It could take two hours. But the presence of fiber is something that actually slows down this digestive process. And that's actually a really good thing because it limits the speed at which glucose gets into your blood. And therefore, it limits the rise in glucose that you will find after eating that food. Contrast that against eating something that's been sweetened with high fructose corn syrup or literally having one tablespoon of white sugar. If you were to do that, there's nothing protecting that sugar. There's nothing protecting that glucose and that fructose from getting inside of your blood. So it hits your tongue, it travels down your esophagus, it gets inside of your small intestine, and the enzymes inside of your small intestine are like, oh, I don't really have to do anything. There's no fiber, there's no water, there's no, uh, there's no fat, there's no protein, there's no vitamins, there's no minerals, there's no antioxidants, there's no phytochemicals. So my job here is done. And as a result of that, the glucose and the fructose from that refined, concentrated substance get inside of your blood very quickly. And then from that point, your blood glucose can spike and your blood glucose will start to go up very quickly. And then that causes a whole bunch of downstream effects. So my point here is that if we're going to use the term sugar, we, we can only use the term sugar to define and talk about refined sweeteners. That's it. We cannot use the word sugar to refer to what you get from a banana or a potato or beans or lentils or a piece of bread. That is carbohydrate energy, and it comes prepackaged with a bunch of other stuff, and that other stuff is, is vitally important for the digestive process. You know, you brought up something uh, else uh, in terms of fiber, and I think that's such an under-talked about, uh, you know, f not food, but I, I don't even know what you uh, – um, nutrient. nutrient. And um, and the reason why it's so valuable is because of of when we when we are consuming a lot of fiber that actually helps to keep the inflammation down in our bodies. And so many people are who are struggling with not just diabetes but chronic pain in general um, are uh, they don't realize how much inflammation is contributing to that and and how much uh, a, a fiber rich diet. Right, which is mostly going to be a plant-based diet, is going to help reduce the inflammation in your body, thus reducing the chronic pain and your symptoms no of diabetes. Right? Can you talk to that a little bit? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you're right. You can think of fiber as basically being the innocent bystander that is present in foods that have serious disease-fighting potential. I'll say that one more time. Fiber is the innocent bystander that comes prepackaged inside of foods that have serious disease-fighting potential. And if you think about it, fiber comes inside of fruits and starchy vegetables and non-starchy vegetables and legumes and whole grains. And if you look into the research and you really study about what happens to people who eat those foods as the base of their diet, just like you were describing for the people living in Peru and beyond, or the people living in the blue zones, it's that people who base their diets off of these fiber-rich foods end up with a very low risk for many chronic conditions, whether it's diabetes, whether it's Alzheimer's disease, fatty liver disease, chronic kidney disease, cancer, or heart disease. And so, uh, you know, you can pick apart and say, okay, well, is it the mango that's giving you the benefits? Is it the black beans that's giving you the benefits? And, you know, you may come up with an answer, you may not. For the most part, what the scientific community does know is that if 
if you focus on literally just finding a way to dramatically increase the amount of fiber that goes into your mouth, then all of the other disease-fighting uh, nutrients that come along with it, the vitamins, the minerals, the, fi- the, the, the water, the antioxidants, and the phytochemicals, those guys just happen to come along for the ride. And those are the guys that are decreasing inflammation and preventing blood clots from forming and keeping your, uh, your blood vessels nice and elastic and making it so that oxygen in your blood can easily get inside of your muscle tissue and inside of your liver and inside of your brain. So really thinking about fiber as like one of the simplest things that can dramatically improve your health. It's just a simple way to think about uh, how to try and limit your risk for chronic disease in general. Well, you know, and I also realized looking back on my childhood and the messages I received that I think part of what's kept people away from fiber is that it's associated with farting, right? Like you think about, oh, don't eat those beans, man. You're going to fart. And I I think that what a lot of people don't realize, one is, uh, you know, how are you preparing the beans? Are they fried beans or are they baked beans? Did you soak the beans? And then uh, two, to experiment to figure out what beans are best for your gut. Because, like, I can't eat lentils. Like, my stomach, uh, me and lentils, we don't get along. And uh, northern beans, uh, we, we have an a adversarial uh, relationship. But, uh, but kidney beans, black beans, uh, just, uh, you know, there's a lot of other beans I can eat. So, I, it, you know, I, I just also want to encourage the listeners to definitely go get blood work done and see if you have any intolerances uh, to anything. Um, because like I said, it's not just the food itself. It's how it was prepared and the source of it. And, uh, there's other things that can factor into your, how your body responds to it. You know, uh, Cyrus, you're in Costa Rica, so you get the the best of all of it. Oh man, I'm in bean central down here. There's there's so much good stuff. One thing I will say is that you're, you're right in the sense that, uh, it is possible that when you eat more beans, you end up farting more. And, and I will be the first person to attest to that because when I, I transitioned my diet from a, you know, I'd say like meat-heavy-ish diet to a fiber-rich diet, uh, you did not want to come near me. Okay, For literally, <laughs> for literally two months, um, I felt very, very bad for my roommates because they were like, oh, man, like what is going on inside of you? And I was like, I don't know. But – in hindsight, after learning about this process and after you know putting some scientific analysis on it, what you'll find is that the the reason that most people end up farting a lot as a result of eating fiber-rich foods is because this the microbiome, which are trillions and trillions of, of bacteria that live in your large intestine, they adapt to the food that you eat. So if you're eating a lot of dairy products or you're eating a lot of chicken and a lot of fish and a lot of eggs, the bacteria inside of your large intestine adapt to those foods. And they, um, when they adapt to those foods, with the, the, the specific species that live inside of your large intestine are the ones that can metabolize the breakdown products of those foods. And that's a good thing for you because that means that you can effectively metabolize those foods. So if you go from eating those foods to all of a sudden switching over and eating fiber-rich foods, you literally don't have the right collection of bacteria inside of your large intestine to handle that fiber. And it takes time to develop that bacterial population. It could take, it could take as, as, as little as two weeks. It could take 
as much as six months. And so that's actually one of the reasons why we recommend that when people switch over to a plant-based diet, that they do it slowly. Because if you do it super quickly, then all of a sudden you get a bunch of gas, bloating, constipation, sometimes diarrhea, sometimes abdominal pain, because you literally do not have the bacterial infrastructure to be able to handle fiber-rich foods. But over the course of time, I can tell you this, that your digestion improves and the, the bacteria in your large intestine, they, they turn over and the population changes to bacteria that are very uh, effective at metabolizing the breakdown products of fiber-rich foods. And when you have a sufficient collection of those bacteria, then your digestion is top-notch and your risk for chronic disease is low at the same time. Uh, and I think what? this is a good time to remind people, Cyrus, of what we've learned from Dr. B, a good friend of ours, has a book coming out soon called Fiber Fueled. And he teaches people that those who are struggling to digest plants are the people who need plants the most because that means you likely have a compromised microbiome. And that process of healing your microbiome and getting it to a healthier state is very important for your overall health. And there are some struggles in the beginning, but it's worth it. He compares it to lifting weights. When you go and lift weights, it's challenging, it's painful, but there is a end result that's beneficial. You know, and and I agree because uh, even though I, I fart, uh, they don't stink. Like once I really honed in uh, my nutrition, the only time they stink is when I, I experiment and I eat something that, you know, I don't know, I quite don't know what it is and it's a little processed. And then, uh, and then, they, but now, I, man, I fart with confidence. And so uh, I don't know, I don't know if you want to put that as a quote, like in, 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 in a book or something, you know, but um, <laughs> I feel like I'm doing a commercial farting with confidence. <laughs> But but, it, but it's true. It's like I, I when if I fart and my farts stink, I go okay. That tells me I ate something that I shouldn't have eaten. But if I fart and I don't smell anything, then I know that uh, everything's on the up and up. So it, it, I think it's also a good right. indication of uh, uh, your, your, you know it goes back to listen, knowing how to listen to your body and or or smell it or I don't know I don't know how to say it. Um, can we talk about fats because? You know, a lot of people are so afraid of fat, of getting fat. There's this whole war against fat. Can we talk about the the, the healthy fats versus the, the the fats we shouldn't be putting in our body? For sure, for sure. Um, quick question for you. Yes. Uh, since you switched over to a more plant-strong diet, uh, how do you feel? I feel great. I, but I, I will say this. I feel great in conjunction with other factors. So I feel great, one, having switched over to a plant-based diet uh, because, uh, you know, like stuff is moving through Leo flowers quickly. So that always makes me happy. There's, there's no struggle. I'm not reading books in the bathroom anymore. I'll say that. And um, but two, in conjunction with intermittent fasting. So uh, as long as I if I stop eating before like by six six thirty then man i sleep like a monster like a champ um this past week my sleep's been a little off because of the change of season so there's more allergies there's more stuff in the air but typically like i have a, a sleep app that monitors my sleep every night and i have no trouble 
uh, falling asleep, and uh, and there's there's extra blood flow if you know what I'm saying. So, uh, <laughs> but but it's made me more diligent um, in terms of making sure I'm getting in my dark leafy greens one. But uh, and then ramping up my quinoa oats and 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 veg- eating more vegetables. I think when people think plant based, they think and this is how I used to think. I'm just I'm projecting, but I just used to think like spinach, kale, those things. But uh, if you start to think about like vegetables, like you know carrots, potatoes, uh, you know uh, yeah. uh, you know squash, uh, those things. Then all of a sudden you're like, oh, this is a hearty meal. Like this, this, mm-hmm. this sticks to the gut. It fills me up. I feel great, and you know, I, I but I don't feel sluggish. So, uh, but yeah, so it's in conjunction uh, with a number of, with, with some other things for sure. That's great. That's great. I'm I'm really glad to hear that actually. Thank you, bro. Because yeah, man, it's like I had no idea actually that you switched over to a plant strong diet, but uh, I'm very glad. To- hear that because it's it's really not that hard to do you just have to have a a reason to want to do it in the first place and if you can just commit to it and um really make it a focus in your life chances are i'll give you a strong vote of confidence that you'll probably stick with it and the goal is not necessarily always to become 100 percent vegan or 100 percent plant-based if you want to go for it if you don't want to it's not the end of the world because what the scientific data shows is that even if there's a small amount of animal-based foods in your diet, which personally Robbie or I don't do, but even if there was a small amount, still eating a diet that's plant-strong, that's got predominantly fruits, vegetables, legumes, and whole grains in it, um, that's what gives you the best bang for your buck. Yeah, and I, and I also want to let the listeners know that this was a long journey for me. I When I was in college... I, I was I was really heavy into Zen and Buddhism, and that led me down the plant based uh, going vegan for a little bit in college. But you know, in college, I didn't really do the research. So I was more of a junk food vegan at that time, and so mm-hmm. uh, that lasted for I think maybe like six months, and then uh, I moved to LA, and then uh, was vegan for maybe a couple months, fell off, and then I went vegan like hardcore for three years. Like I got rid of my wool coats, no leather belts. Like there was, there was no, like I, I was like, I, I didn't even say beast mode. Like there was no animal, nothing in my, uh, on me or in me for, uh, for three years. And then, um, and now recently, so I still eat meat and I still eat fish, but I like, I used to have it like breakfast, lunch, dinner. And now it might be one meal a day. Um, but it's like it's not the thing that I'm I'm like I'm not dependent on meat. Like I'm I'm very comfortable. Uh like my breakfast is, has no animal products. My lunch, uh well my, my lunch might have some and then my dinner is pretty much back to plant based. Like I'm good, like I'm gonna have a smoothie, a vegetable smoothie right here. We get this farm fresh to your door. So Oh, cool, cool. So I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm like, it, it's, but what it's done is, so I, what I want the listeners to, is to think about it is not so much going on a diet as much as going on a journey. This is really an opportunity for people to explore foods and to, and to learn about foods that they otherwise would never have tried. Like cashew cheese is amazing. 
you know, uh, uh, what was that? What's that spaghetti? The the squash spaghetti or uh, zucchini? Yeah, uh, spaghetti squash, but zucchini uh, spaghetti or whatever. Like there's just so many. Yeah, there's just so many ways that that we can play with food. And especially now with the corn. I was talking to my sister earlier. I was like, this is now the time for you to really uh, have fun with food instead of, you know, um, uh, uh, sticking to the same old, same old. This is the time for you to experiment and try some things. So even if we could just move you a little bit closer, get more uh, plant-based in your diet, I mean, it's, it's something's better than nothing. But I just, I just want to be uh, uh, completely transparent and say it was a long, it's been a long journey for me. And so, I, I, you know, I just know that but with this book, it, it, it could be the beginning and the start of, of a better future. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. I fully agree with you. Um, the, the, the other thing I want to cover is, like, what does a breakfast look like? So, you know, I talked about mine. It's my, I mean, my bowl is packed. It's so, so that people out there don't think that we over here just eating oatmeal. Like, my bowl come with the oatmeal, the quinoa, walnuts, flaxseed, chia seeds, blueberries, uh, raspberries, almond butter. Am I missing anything, baby? My girl's in the background. Okay, so... <laughs> huh? uh, this is yeah. our favorite stuff to talk about here. Yeah, man. Is what people actually get to eat yeah. when following the Mastering Diabetes Method. Talk to Because I think a lot of people have this idea that a plant-based diet is a bunch of carrots and lettuce and it's not exciting and it's not delicious and it couldn't be further from the truth. So we are very fruit friendly at mastering diabetes. We love eating fruit and we find that the more fruit people eat, the better results they get, whether that's losing weight much quicker, whether that's gaining energy a lot faster, whether that's lowering their blood glucose much quicker more fruit, better, which is really confusing for a lot of people. But as Cyrus explained earlier, hopefully it makes sense to a lot of people right now. It's a whole food. You're getting glucose and fructose in this package. So for me, I'll personally, for breakfast, I'll eat maybe five, six bananas. Um, put, I could put that in a, a smoothie um, and add some mango, some papaya. But literally as much fruit as I want. There's no restriction on the amount of fruit people consume in our program one you know about four servings or so is a good way to look at it but really when you're hungry till you're satisfied that's a core component of what we're teaching people to do when you eat these high fiber foods loaded with water content you don't need to count your calories or restrict the volume of what you're eating so um you get to eat this whole variety of foods all right so um Let's see here. In our book, we have breakfast recipes, and it doesn't have to be just fruit. So we have a Mexican bean breakfast skillet in the book. We have a chickpea scramble. There's all kinds of different foods you can eat at breakfast. And just to sort of give people some clear guidance, we have a traffic light system. Green light, yellow light, and red light foods. So the green light category, that includes fruits. That's apples, bananas, pears, mangoes, peaches, you name it. All fruits are on board. Then you have starchy vegetables, potatoes, yams, butternut squashes, then beans, peas, and lentils, and then intact whole grains. That's farro, millet, put quinoa in that category, 
Oat groats are a great option. You can include all of those as well. And then green light foods also include non-starchy vegetables, leafy greens, herbs and spices, and mushrooms. So those foods can be used to make a wide range of meals. But again, breakfast is centered on on eating a lot of fruit. Are you eating a lot of fruit? Because you live in L.A. We get great fruit here, man. Man, let me tell you something. So I... (laughs) There are videos of me eating uh, pounds of grapes, and uh, I used to go in. I used to go in grocery stores just to see how many grapes I could eat before somebody stopped me and made me pay for it. Um, <laughs> and and I think those video. I don't know if the video is still up on YouTube, but I, I finished entire bags in grocery stores. So I was like, "Wow, this is strange." But anyway, um, grapes, and I heard we got something in common, Robbie. We're both mango kings. Like I, I murder. All three of us I, on this phone call yo, love mangoes. I murder. I got I got like two bags of Trader Joe's dried mangoes uh, in the in the pantry right now. My, we grew up, you know. My mom's from Belize, and so we had we grew grapes and mangoes in the backyard. So every morning I get up, climb the tree before the uh, the army ants woke up, and I had to get up there get the mangoes, and then I'd be murdering mangoes all day. There's, no, there's not much better than eating some fresh mangoes. I mean, Cyrus lived in Hawaii. Did you try and break the Guinness World Book of Records for eating mangoes, Cyrus? Yeah, so I lived in Hawaii for two years before I went to grad school, and I decided I wanted to set the world record for eating mangoes. So I would I would drive around in a pickup truck, and I had a bucket, literally one of those painter's buckets in the back of my truck, and I would just go visit. I made a map of like 35 or 40 different mango trees that were in between, you know, my house and the university. And I would go visit as many of these trees as I possibly could every single day and just pick up as many mangoes as I could that were on the ground. And there were days where I would eat, I kid you not, 35 mangoes and nothing else. Because when they're free and they're fresh and they come right off the tree, as you know, Leo, there's there's nothing better. <laughs> There's just nothing better than them. Hold up, hold up, hold up. Let me let me pull it up right now because I think the listeners are still. I don't I don't think they listen. The 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 mango has 25 percent of your vitamin A, 76 percent vitamin. So right here, when we when we think about vitamin C, we're always talking about oranges. But I'm gonna tell you right now, mangoes have 76 percent of the vitamin C that you need in a day. It got the vitamin E, your K. It's high in B6. Let me see. Let me look at the minerals. I ain't even looked at the minerals yet. Hold on, people. Potassium? <laughs> Potassium? Oh, my. it got calcium for your teeth? Come on, man. Y'all playing. Y'all playing right yep. now. And, so. and especially, you know, in today's world, uh, you know, now that the coronavirus has kind of hit and people are at home trying to figure out, well, what am I going to eat? How am I going to maximize my health? There's this huge focus on eating vitamin C rich foods because vitamin C is a very powerful antioxidant. Uh, that may have some immune boosting activity. And so most people think, oh, vitamin C, I'm going to go eat some oranges or I'm going to have a grapefruit. But in reality, uh, there's a bazillion foods that are high in vitamin C. And just like you're saying, mangoes happen to be one of them that most people just have no idea about. What, what's another food that you feel like people are sleeping on? Like when you're like, man, I can't believe people not just consuming this. Like instead of grabbing like toilet paper, like, what's that thing they should be grabbing? Arugula. 
You should be grabbing some arugula. <laughs> Talk to me, man. Talk to me about that arugula, man. You're talking my language right now. You got that, got that NO, that nit that nitric oxide up in there. It sure does. And for me, it's just got this kick, man. I I love the flavor of arugula. But it's really any any greens. Leafy greens are underutilized and they actually taste good, especially when you combine them with other really delicious ingredients. I mean, you can have a potato salad where the potatoes are your calorie dense component served on top of greens. You can have a bunch of mangoes, a bunch of papaya, uh, you can serve on top of greens. I love eating fruit with greens at just about every single meal. And I'm sure Cyrus can talk to the nitric oxide benefit. Oh, man. So here's one of my favorite things about uh, certain foods that are considered nitrate rich. So whether you're talking about arugula or spinach or uh, arugula, spinach, beets and fennel seeds, those are the top four. There's a couple others that I'm blanking on right now. But those foods have known um, there's a there's a compound in them called nitrates. And they're uh, considered extremely nitrate rich. So what what happens is that you eat those foods, you chomp them with your teeth. They travel down your go through your stomach and into your small intestine. Um, once they're in your small intestine, the nitrates in those foods get absorbed through the walls of your small intestine. They get into your blood, and they circulate back into your mouth. The nitrates get get worked on a second time, and they get reduced from nitrate into nitrite. As soon as they go into nitrite, you swallow them again. They go back down for a second round of digestion, and then once they're there, they get absorbed into your bloodstream again as nitrites, which are the precursor to a compound known as nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is the single most powerful vasodilator in your body. It's a gas. And when nitric oxide is released by the walls of your blood vessels, whether they're in your heart or in your muscles, in your penis, in your brain, it doesn't matter where they are. The blood vessels dilate and that increases the amount of oxygen that can get inside of tissues. So literally there are experiments that show that when you eat these nitrate rich compounds within 30 minutes to one hour, the amount of oxygen that gets delivered to tissues increases. And there are athletes now that are doing this thing called beat doping, which is fantastic. They will literally before like a 5k race or before like a hard training session, they will chug a smoothie containing a bunch of beets in it. So it might be like beets and bananas. And sometimes they put arugula in there and they just get a lot of nitrate compounds. They drink it. They wait for approximately one hour. At that point, blood vessels are already dilating. They're already delivering tons of oxygen and then boom, they will go and they will start running immediately. During that run, a lot of these athletes report that number one, they are running faster with less effort. And then when you look at their actual times, you'll find that their their 5K times are are significantly improved. They're like, you know, they're they're multiple, they're like five to ten seconds faster than they would have been if they were not consuming those those nitrate-rich compounds. So you, from an athletic perspective, you can gain an advantage, right? From an, if you have erectile dysfunction, I kid you not, you can eat nitrate-rich foods, and that can improve your erectile dysfunction, and you know potentially even get rid of it. If you're living with hypertension or high blood pressure, you can eat nitrate-rich vegetables once or twice a day, and that will drop your blood pressure. It's unbelievable how powerful this stuff is. 
I, I, people yeah. don't even understand. Like, it's so true, the nitrate-rich foods, because I actually do it myself. Like, and so, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm not just about the science. Like, I'm out here in the streets uh, and for sure eating. I'll, I'll put, uh, actually, it's going to be part of my smoothie before bed tonight. But I love to put beets in my smoothie just for that. Get that. You feel the, the blood. You actually feel vascular. You can feel the blood literally rushing through your veins when you have the beets with the arugula. Uh, yeah. And uh, what else do I put in there? As a, some, oh, yeah, I do put the spinach. But, oh, but I also put a Swiss chard. I like that rainbow Swiss chard in there uh, mm-hmm. for some extra leafy greens. The, now, there's so many supplements Uh uh, we talked before, uh, Cyrus, about the fact that there's only one supplement that uh, we do need to supplement. Uh, can you talk about that? Yeah, the only one supplement. And people ask this question all the time. They're like, well, where are you getting your vitamins and minerals from? And do I need omega-3 essential fatty acids? Uh, and the answer is there's only one supplement which is truly required. And that one supplement is vitamin B12. So vitamin B12 is made by microorganisms that live in the soil. And when you eat a meat-based diet, it is easier to get vitamin B12 in your food simply because land-grazing animals chomp on grass and they end up eating the bacteria that are in the soil. So the bacteria make the B12, a cow, a chicken, they end up eating the bacteria and then it gets inside of them and then the B12 ends up in the meat. When you consume the meat, there's more B12 in meat than you would ever find in any plant-based food, whether it's black beans or arugula or spinach or tomatoes. Okay. But what's interesting about this is that in today's day and age, because the soil has been depleting in quality over the course of time, especially with these like very large monocrop massive agricultural systems, the vitamin B12 content of the soil has been decreasing over time, which means that even people who are eating meat these days end up or are at a higher risk for vitamin B12 deficiency. So just because you're eating a meat-based diet does not mean that your vitamin B12 status is going to be high anymore. Um, But if you're eating a vegetarian or a vegan diet or a predominantly plant-based diet, absolutely go pick up a vitamin B12 supplement from the store. It's one of the cheapest things that you can possibly get. It literally will cost you something on the order of like 10 bucks per year. And all you need to do is make sure that you're taking it, you know, 2,500 micrograms on a, a per, per week. And that's sufficient amounts to keep your vitamin B12 status uh, high at all times. And that prevents against any kind of uh, neurological defects which can occur when you're vitamin B12 deficient. Oh, you said, so you said 2,500 uh, micro, uh, micrograms per week? Micrograms per week, yeah. So... Um, yeah, you just, you can get like a 2,500 microgram vitamin B12, uh, pill or, you know, supplement and literally just like eat it and then that's it. And that, that will give you a sufficient amount of vitamin B12, um, you know, over the course of time to keep your vitamin B12 high. Uh, now is it better to get liquid pill? Does it really matter? Is there a company that you recommend? Um, so is there a company I don't recommend? recommend any one particular company, but what I would recommend is take a look at the actual ingredients because sometimes vitamin B12 and other supplements can have um, 
I can have additives put into the uh, the actual you know capsule, right? And then that can actually cause you know many other issues down the road. So there's no particular company that I would recommend getting it. You can get it in liquid form, and then what ends up happening is you put a, a dropper underneath your tongue, and you let it sit there for about 15 seconds, and it and it actually absorbs sublingually into your blood, and then you swallow the rest of the liquid that that didn't get absorbed. And then you end up with vitamin B12 that way. Or you can literally take a vitamin B12 pill and just crunch it in your mouth and swallow it. The beauty here is that you're taking in, let's just say you're taking in 2,500 micrograms of vitamin B12. Um, At any given moment in time, the receptors in your large intestine, guess how many of those micrograms they can absorb at any one given time. What's your Uh, guess? All of it? I don't know. Uh, you would think, you would think <laughs> it's a good guess. The answer is four, four micrograms. You're taking 2,500 micrograms, then you are absorbing four, Wow. which would mean, Oh, wait a minute. I guess I'm going to waste the other 2,496 micrograms. And the answer is the receptors will max out by taking in four at any given, given time. But then there's this passive diffusion of the remainder of that vitamin B12 into your blood over the course of time. And so this passive diffusion ends up like kind of drip feeding more vitamin B12 over the course of, you know, 12 to 15 to 18 hours. And then your overall vitamin B12 status ends up, you know, increasing. The number of micrograms that you're absorbing goes up over the course of many hours. So point being is that, you know, you can easily max out your vitamin B12 absorption capacity, but, uh, if you do 2,500 micrograms, what the research shows, you do that once a week, and that's sufficient to keep your status nice and high. Uh, now, the question that, you know, for a lot of people is going to be the social aspect of food. I mean, it, it, food is not just about nutrition. It's also a way of communicating, a way of connecting. And it, uh, one of the challenges for people is uh, to, when you live in a household or you have a family and, and you're trying to go one direction nutritionally and the others. How how do you recommend people uh, handle uh, you know being at a restaurant and and having a conversation as to uh, why they're making a change? Because I, I know I, I had to I had to deal with that when I went vegan. So navigating restaurants is one of the uh, one of the most fun things that we actually wrote about in the book, and uh, one of the best things you can do when going to a restaurant is being using humor to communicate with the waiter or waitress. And the way you do that is first off before let's take a step back before you go to the restaurant, you want to try and pick types of restaurants that are going to have healthier options. So a lot of ethnic cuisines are a great way to find plant-based meals. So whether that's a Thai restaurant, um, Mexican restaurants can be great. And these menus are going to have more plant-based options and they're going to be easier to modify. And before you walk into a restaurant in 2020, you should know exactly what you're going to order. And you can do that by using your phone, using your computer, going to the website and looking at the menu. And you look at the menu and you see that there might be certain ingredients interspersed into different meals. So you're not going to walk into a restaurant and they're going to feed you, you know, a perfect 
you know, mastering diabetes friendly, low fat plant based whole food meal. But there will be green light ingredients interspersed throughout the menu. And you walk in there and you have the confidence to communicate with the, the waiter or waitress and get the foods that you want. So a lot of times you can play the card of, you know, first off, try to intercept the waiter or waitress outside of the table. So you're there with a bunch of people. If you can get up, you fake, you go to the bathroom, you've grabbed the, the server and you're like, hey, uh, um, this is this is one of Cyrus's jokes. But he's like, hey, um, I'm trying to break the record for insulin sensitivity. And if I have certain foods, it's going to crush my hopes and dreams. Can you help me out? And you sort of get the server on your side to understand where you're coming from, what you're trying to achieve. And they're like, oh, okay, yeah, I, I understand. Yeah, how can I help you? And you have that conversation away from the table. It allows you to be a little bit more comfortable with the server and get what you want. But it's really about looking through the menu, finding the ingredients that you're looking for, whether that's potatoes. Um, that could be you might find some brown rice on the menu. There's always going to be some greens. There'll always be tomatoes. You can put stuff together. Steakhouses actually end up being a great place to get baked potatoes and vegetables. So you communicate clearly with the server exactly what you're looking for. Instead of listing everything you don't want, you tell them, hey, this is exactly what I want on my plate. And you have that communication. And quite uh, quite often, they're really happy about this. They like the challenge. The restaurant chef is usually intrigued by this new option as long as you are communicating well in advance uh, you know in, in a very friendly fun way and really explaining what you're looking to achieve now another option for restaurants is this is our personal favorite strategy is pre-eating so you can eat a very substantial calorie dense meal at home before you go, or even sometimes I've sort of eaten it on the way there. And when you do that, when you get to the restaurant, you're not starving and craving and you're going to eat that bread that they put on the table. And you really are able to sort of be a little more patient and just order a simple salad because you have filled up on healthier options beforehand. Does that make sense? Absolutely. What my question, uh, you know, as I'm thinking about this B12, if it's if it's so hard uh, to find in foods and plants and where, where are they getting the B12 from these companies? Uh, that is a great question. I don't know the answer. I, my gut tells me is that they, it's it's uh, they, they do it in a laboratory setting. So they they culture bacteria that have the vitamin that, are, that manufacture the vitamin B12 and then they isolate the vitamin B12 from those bacteria and then they mass, you know, mass manufacture it that way. But that is a great question. Uh, yeah, not to catch you off guard, but yeah, my brain was just, uh, was, I was like, wait, where are they getting this B12 from? Because I'm looking it up now and I'm like, I'm definitely going to stock up on a B12. But you know, since I only need 2,500 a week, I really don't need to stock up. So don't, don't go out there buying a case a B12 people, uh, you're good. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you, that you guys feel like people need to know? Yeah, here's one of the things that I that I, I think that would love to drive home here. Um, most people living with any form of diabetes 
have been told over the course of time that diabetes is something they're going to have to live with for the rest of their life. Uh, Robbie and myself live with type 1 diabetes. And technically speaking, that is an accurate statement as of today, that there's no cure for type 1 diabetes. Robbie and I have no get out of jail for free card right now. And that's okay because we have a lifestyle which helps us control our blood glucose and it keeps our life real straightforward and it reduces our risk for chronic disease. So that's a good thing. But for people living with prediabetes and type 2 diabetes, which is the majority of people, 92% of the diabetes population, uh, this idea that you're going to have to live with diabetes for the rest of your life is not only incorrect, it is blatantly incorrect. Okay, so the medical world used to believe that that was a true statement. And, you know, 50 years ago, when that methodology was first developed and doctors were, you know, unsuccessful at reversing diabetes, okay, fine, that was cool. But over the course of time, there have been countless examples and countless medical and scientific studies that have actually shown that by adopting a plant-strong diet, you can not only make prediabetes and type 2 diabetes more manageable, but you can literally reverse it and reverse the underlying condition called insulin resistance altogether. So one of the most important things that you know, your audience can, can listen to, can, can really un- remember from this podcast is that diabetes and prediabetes, or di- type 2 diabetes and di- prediabetes are predominantly reversible conditions in like 80 to 90% of all situations. And it's really important to understand that first, because once you do, then putting the lifestyle habits into play that are going to make that happen become much more enjoyable and much more fun because you have an end goal in mind. And what we do with the Mastering Diabetes program and our coaching program is we teach people exactly how to do this. We literally hold their hand and teach them how to make the change so that they can do it under you know, guidance and supervision and they can ask as many questions as they want and really understand how they can make this unfold in their life. So you know, diabetes is, does not have to be a death sentence and it does not have to be something that you live with for the rest of your life. Even if you've been living with it for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, it's a, it's a remarkably changeable metabolic condition if you put the right dietary and lifestyle choices into play. Can you talk more about the the, uh, coaching program that you guys have? Yeah, for sure. So, sorry, Robbie, I cut you off. Uh, Yeah, so um, we are really passionate about the the coaching that we do. So this is kind of where we uh, started Mastering Diabetes originally in uh, 2017. And we offer a different range of options based on how much support people are looking for. So a lot of people... They start out with our signature coaching program, and this is where we provide three different tools. The first tool we provide is an online course. This is designed, again, after working with thousands of clients in a way that transitions you step-by-step very efficiently, and it's not overwhelming. So you go through the course, you set some goals, you learn some science, you understand what's going on, you change breakfast, you get some recipes, you get some tips, then you move on to lunch, then you move on to dinner, then you learn how to incorporate intermittent fasting and daily movement in a way that actually excites you and is enjoyable and you can maintain. So you go through all these 
step-by-step changes. And then you use the second tool, which is our online community, to get access to other people who are going through the same transition and overcoming the same challenges that you are, as well as communicating with our team of expert coaches. So anytime you ask a question, our coaches will respond within 24 hours. We want you to know that we are there with you every step of the process. And the community is incredibly helpful. As long as somebody signs up for our coaching program and is simply willing to just communicate, all you have to do is communicate what's going on, what challenges are happening, you will succeed, period, end of story. All you do is communicate, our community will guide you through the process. Then, in addition to the online support, we have um, weekly or twice monthly live coaching calls. So our coaches get on Zoom, you turn your video on, you can talk to them live, and we answer your questions. A lot of people come and just listen and learn a lot from others. And so we use these three tools, and the results are, are quite extraordinary. And people stick with the coaching program because it gets results and staying in touch with that community is part of the long-term success. So if people want more support, we do small group coaching where they get everything that was in large group coaching, but then you talk to your coach once a week in a small group environment, usually about 10 to 15 people in there. And then some people, if they want private coaching, we offer that as well. And of course, any coaching level that people sign up for, you get everything, you get the online course, you get the community, but sometimes you want that more private interaction, we offer that as well. So coaching really, really ramps up people's results. Absolutely. Coaching, having a community, it's one of those things that really help people stick with it. It's when we talk about, you know, earlier I talked about uh, looking at this as a journey and no one can go on a journey and survive a journey uh, on their own. And so it, it would behoove you to not only get the book, read the book, but then, you know, join, uh, you know, their online uh, program and, and check them out. Um, I love what you guys are doing. I've lost uh, so many people in my family to diabetes, and uh, and I, I just watched them feel like they had to suffer alone. And so uh, I'm just I'm, I'm excited by this book. It, it gives me hope, and I know so many people out there are struggling not just with diabetes, but uh, with chronic pain. And 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 if you know, so many people don't realize that by changing their diet, they can reduce that inflammation, thus reducing that pain and. Um, reducing the depressive symptoms and, and, and other things. So uh, I applaud you guys for doing this. Uh, plug all your things. I know you already talked about the coaching program, but replug it again. Where, pe- where can people find you? Where can they get the book? Do all the things, all the marketing things. The book's available everywhere books are sold. So you can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It's the ebook version, Kindle, Nook. We also read our own audiobook, which was really fun, and we got to add in some extra material before each chapter so we could share some behind the scenes, what we were thinking, a little extra science was thrown in there. So that's really fun. You can get that on Audible, Google Play, wherever audiobooks are sold, you can grab it. Um, let's see. What else? We have a podcast. People can check us out. It's called the Mastering Diabetes Audio Experience. That's on all platforms, Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher. You name it, SoundCloud. But our website is probably the best place to go. You go there and you can just get a plethora of resources, free recipes. Um, We got lots of videos, lots of testimonials for people who want to see what others have been through. 
Um, you know, we've got people reversing stage three kidney disease. One man was told he needed to have six stents. He decided to adopt the mastering diabetes method, no longer needed those stents. People obviously reversing type two diabetes, pre-diabetes, people with type one diabetes, reducing their insulin intake while increasing their total carbohydrate intake, gaining or, um, energy, losing weight, got people reverse fatty liver disease, the list goes on and on and on. So our website is really a hub. There's masteringdiabetes.org. Again, that's masteringdiabetes.org. And that's your one-stop shop for everything about maximizing your insulin sensitivity. Robbie, Cyrus, I thank you both so much for being on the podcast. I have a question and I love for you both to answer. Uh, and I ask this of all my guests, because uh, I always feel like there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of ending their life before you kill yourself, what would you say to that person? I would say before you kill yourself, make sure you understand that there's always help available. There's always somebody you could pick up the phone and talk with. There's always somebody who's willing to listen and there's always somebody who can give you a helping hand. Uh, I come from a methodology here that the choices that you make on a daily basis can determine everything else about you. And that if you're struggling with mental health right now and you're having a difficult time really justifying being here, uh, one thing you can do is take a look at the habits that you have on a daily basis and see if there's small changes that you can make, even microscopic, tiny little changes that can have a really profound effect on you and simply changing the food that you're eating on a daily basis is not going to be an overnight fix by any stretch of the imagination, but changing the food that goes into your mouth can literally change the way your brain operates. It can change everything about you. And if you haven't explored that option yet, think about it. It's, uh, it's a very powerful tool and something that I think isn't talked about enough. I would echo everything Cyrus said and just um, obviously, like Cyrus said, I mean, know that people are here to support you. They they do exist, and you're loved, and and people want you to be here. Um, and also to utilize whatever resources you can to educate yourself on on nutrition. I know that might seem a little crazy in that for somebody in that position, but a friend of ours, Joel Furman, wrote a book. I believe it's called Fast Food Genocide. And in that book, he talks a lot about how these companies are spending billions and billions of dollars to mess with our brain and really get us just totally, totally messed up. And when you read some of that material and get yourself exposed to it in any way, shape or form that you can, there's could be this spark inside you that's like, wait a minute, like um, there's there's been an engineering of, of what's going on here. And, and, and I want to stand up against that and I want to stand for something and I'm going to change the way I live. And just like Cyrus was saying, that can just have a domino effect and a dramatic impact on your life. And um, I think that can just be a, a good place to start. Robbie, Cyrus, thank you all so much. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitution for you going to get help, for you going to get coaching, for you calling someone, reaching out, call the one 800 S-U-I-C-I-D-E. Call that number if you need to. It's free. There are a bunch of online free services and apps. There's someone who wants to hear you. 
Your story needs to be told. Uh, go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching. Go to thrivewithleo.com if you want one-on-one coaching. And also check out the masteringdiabetes.org. Thank you and good night.